Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 is the text for our Bible study tonight. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go, he or she, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The second week of two on our little mini-series of parenting, The Good Parent, as we continue our study of Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about parenting, and I think that this verse here really encapsulates all of it. If you look at it, every single word is pregnant with truth. You know, it tells us right there at the beginning, it says, train up. That's an action. It's giving us something to do. The word up indicates direction, which means that at the very beginning, they start as nothing, and it goes up. They start at the bottom, and they got to go upward from there. Every parent that's ever looked at a baby and said, it's perfect, you're wrong. It is not perfect. It has a long way to go. It's got to be trained up. Uh, uh, Then it says train up a child. So there's the object. You're dealing with uh, a soul. You're dealing with a child, someone. And then it says in the way. Train up a child in the way. And the idea is that there is a a travel uh, partner. They're moving with you. They are in the way with you. And thus it implies that your example matters. And then it says in the way that he or she should go. And again, that implies that there are many ways that they could go, but we're to train them in the way that they should go. And then it says to us, it says that then when they are old or when they are mature or when they're grown, it says that they will not depart from it or they will walk in the path that you and I prepare them for. The path that they have been trained for is the path that they will walk in. Now, this is an amazing verse. I don't know if there are um, metrics in heaven. I don't know if there's measurements placed upon things that happen. If I was in heaven, I think that that would interest me. If there was some stats on different things, uh, you know, how many people have gotten saved through, I'd want to see some charts and graphs. You know, sometimes those things kind of interest me. And, and I wonder sometimes if there is a tally somewhere of maybe some verses or promises that are prayed for and how many times? You know, how many times has this promise been claimed? And you can look and see how many there are. And I think that if anything like that does exist in heaven, this is one of those verses that is held before God in prayer on a very regular basis. Oh God, you said that if we train up a child in the way that they should go, that when they're old, they will not depart from it. Lord, please grab a hold of my child. You know, And I think this is one of those ones that's like that. And really, my understanding of this verse has kind of evolved throughout the years or changed uh, as I've walked with the Lord. It started out for me in my mind as a promise. This was a great comfort to me. It's like, okay, I'm going to raise them up in the way that they should go and give them everything I can. And God's going to save them. And it's a guarantee. And I kind of had that. It was a promise. But then I lived a little bit of Christian walk. And I saw that sometimes 
A child is raised up in the way that they should go and they don't necessarily uh, come, come back or, you know, it doesn't happen the way that I thought. And so then I thought, okay, well, it's not a promise. It's a principle. It's not a guarantee. It's a guideline. It's telling me, you know, that it, it's, it's, it's kind of making room for their will. There's a willingness in it. And so I, it became kind of a principle. The problem I had with that and kind of have with that is that it makes me feel like God is weak, like it's kind of given him an out. A little bit like, okay, well, I don't have to save them or, or something like that. And so it never really sat right. And, and then I think where it has landed or where it is right now is, is not necessarily a promise and not necessarily just a guideline or a principle, but really it's just kind of a practical. It, it's kind of a law, but not in the sense of like a divine law as much as in the sense of, of like a scientific law, like gravity. You know, uh, in, in other words, you know, if it's if it's like that, it's it's kind of like saying this is that it's natural for every created thing to kind of fall into the groove that they're fitted for. You know, people and things do what comes natural and what comes easy to them. The things that by nature they are trained in, they ultimately find that groove. They might not find it right away, especially when you're talking about humans, but they will find it. And when they find it, that's going to be the track or the groove that they stay in. There's a verse a couple of chapters over in Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 30, uh, and it starts in verse 18. It's another one of those... um, Things. This wasn't written by Solomon. It was written by this guy named Agur. He has uh, credits and rights to the words in chapter 30. And he has some poetic ways of saying things. But he says this. He says in verse 18, he says that there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four, which I know not. Four things are just, they just amaze me. Even to this day, I see them and I, I'm just, my mind is blown when I see these four things. And then he tells us what they are. Verse 19, he says, first of all, the way of an eagle in the air, the way it soars. Second, the way of a serpent upon a rock. And if you've ever seen kind of a snake cross a rock, it's just this amazing thing because it, it looks like they're not even moving, but yet they're moving. They just kind of glide and slither and somehow they maintain their track. And it's just this amazing way that they move. Then he says, thirdly, the way of a ship in the midst of a sea. The way that it can navigate waves and a storm and that it can stay afloat in spite of the tides and currents and waves and different things that are trying to bring it down, but it finds its way. And then finally, and this is the one of those things that's not like the others, I think it's what he's maybe trying to you know, point us to ultimately, he says, the way of a man with a maid or with a woman, the way of a man as he's trying to work it, so to speak, and, uh, you know, win over the, the affections of a young woman. But essentially, all of these four things have something in common. From the eagle all the way to the man, they, they have four things in common. is that they have a motive. That means there's something inside that, that they want something. That there's some reason inside of them that's going to drive them to something. And that motive is then going to turn into a mission. Is because they want something, they're going to formulate a plan as to how to go get it. And then thirdly, there's going to be a movement or motion. Somehow they're going to go for it and they have a mechanism that's been given to them by God whereby they're going to try to get the thing that they want. So they have a motive, a mission, a movement. And then finally, what all four of these things have is they have a method. And so the eagle has been given by God the method of soaring. It knows how to use wind currents. And so it uses them because that's its method. 
The serpent has a method. It has a a scale system that can cause it to slither and move. And so it's going to use what it's been given in order to accomplish the goal, what it wants. It's going to gain what it wants. It's the same thing with the ship. The ship is different, but it has the same thing. It's got to go somewhere, and it's been equipped with something in order to do that. And so it's able to navigate through obstacles to get where it needs to go. That's how it moves. And then finally, there's the man. Now, the man is different than all the others because the eagle, all eagles are the same. The snake, all snakes are the same. Ships are pretty much all the same. But a man with a maid, that's different. That's not always the same. Some guys, they go about trying to get their woman by speaking nice things to them. Some by trying to buy them a drink. Some try to do it by getting a neck tattoo and treating them really poorly. And they all somehow seem to accomplish their mission, even though they don't do it the same way. So what does it have to do with training up a child in the way that they should go? Here's what it is. Is that naturally speaking, our kids, in fact, all humans, because we're all kids in some regard of someone, we are given a way. We are equipped with a set of tools, a worldview, an understanding, talents and gifts. We all have a motive. We have a mission. We have a means of moving and then a method whereby we do it. And those things are different according to our experiences. And so what the proverb about raising our kids is trying to tell us is basically that however we train our kids, that's the way they're going to live. Whatever groove we give them and however we shape them to function in that groove, that's the way they're ultimately going to go. And that might be a good way or it might be a bad way. It might be positive or it might be negative. But how we train them is the way that they are going to function. And so it's important that we understand we have a role to play in preparing them for the groove and then laying forward and making an example of that groove so that we're digging it and also then fitting them for it. And so we're to train them up. It's our job to shape them for the right groove. It's important for us to understand that they're children, which means that they're pliable, they're impressionable, they're teachable, they're open, and so we have the opportunity to have an effect upon them that's going to help them. There is a way that they should go, which means that we understand as parents that not all paths profit and that not all grooves get to glory and we have to know that we have to understand that there are many different things that they could get involved in we also have to understand that there's a maturity process in all meaning has a shelf life meaning we don't have them forever every day is an opportunity that we either seize upon or we let it slip by but eventually the shelf life of their childhood is going to go away and we will no longer have the level of influence that we do in their younger years and then it says that when they're old they will not depart and what that is saying to us and this is both a good thing and it could be a bad thing is that whatever groove they are fitted for However it is that they are trained, that is what they ultimately are going to end up in. When they bottom out, they are going to default to what comes natural. And we have a part to play in that. So last week, 
I gave you three points. I promised you three more this week. Last week, I told you that a good parent is always a child. A good parent is always a teacher. And a good parent is always a companion. You can go back and revisit that if you missed it. But this week, three more. And I was hoping to have my wife come and share one, but she would not. So I had to make one up for the one that she was going to do because I can't give you what she would have given you. And so shame on her. She has now been publicly humiliated. (laughs) But she's so gracious that she will forgive me. And if you ever want to have a conversation with her one-on-one, she'd be happy to do that. (laughs) But anyways, uh, what I want to talk to you first about this week is that a good parent, the good parent is always God-centered. Now, we live in a solar system, and in the solar system that we live in, the sun is central, and all of the planets keep their place in their orbit based upon the gravitational properties of that sun that is there in the center, and so everything else revolves around that. Now, in the same way, every family unit also has a center, and the center of a family unit would be defined as the highest priority or the thing that is valued the highest in the home or the household or the family, and that is the thing by which decisions are made, activities are allowed, and resources are used. That would be the center, the highest priority of the house. And so for some households, the center of the house is school or education. And so the goal in that household is grades. And so there's pressure in that household to get good grades, to do well on tests, to get into a good college, and to get a degree. Now, there's nothing wrong with education or degrees or a good job. None of that's wrong. That's a good thing, but it's a bad center. It's not a good thing to be the center of your home. In other homes, sports are the center. And so... The goal in that household is winning at all costs. Anybody in here ever been involved in travel sports? Travel sports is kind of like a cult. They take all your money and they control your life. <laughs> right? now, now again, there's nothing wrong with sports. Sports are a good thing, but they're a bad center when everything is governed by and worked around that. In other households, money is the center. And so the goal is work. We need money, yes, and we need to work. But if both parents are over-involved at work and under-involved with their kids, then the kids are left to raise themselves. And so although work is necessary and good, it's a bad center. It's not good that the family unit is centered on it. Other families are centered on fear. So maybe there was a bad childhood. Maybe there are some wounds in in the lives of the parents that haven't been healed or haven't been dealt with properly. And so the mentality is always, what if this or what if that? And so the goal in a fear-centered household is control, trying to control outcomes, trying to make things manufacture endings and outcomes. Again, it's a bad center. Now, the wise parent... The wise parent creates a God-centered system, meaning that God is the center. God is the highest priority. God is the highest value in that household. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to seek 
first the kingdom of God, and then he said that all these other things will be added to you. Just like in the solar system, the sun is central, and all of the planets orbit at the right distance. And so when God is central in a household, all of the other things find their right priority level, and those things might be different for each family. And so for some families, sports might be a higher priority than another family, but it isn't centered. It might be in the place of Mercury. It's close, but it's not central. For other families, that might be way out at Pluto. And it's like, yo, let's play bocce when family picnic time comes around or something, you know. But we, you know, it's, but, but the point is that the, the house God is central. And so when God is central, God's word and God's ways establish the priorities, establish the actions and activities, establish the values and the way that decisions are made. When God is the center, it's clear to everyone in the home that God is the highest authority in that household even over the parents he's the priority in a god-centered house the presence of prayer and faith is more than just something that we do at meal times or talk about a couple of times a week but it's very clear that we appeal to god that we depend upon god and that we trust in god in that home he is yielded to appealed to he's consulted and he's demonstrated and he's trusted in all things In a God-centered home, it's clear that there's devotion to him, relationship with him, dependence upon him, and it's seen that there is involvement of him, meaning that it is seen by everyone in the house that God is helping. The provision of God is recognized, it's seen and experienced. The help of God is seen and experienced. In a God-centered home, it's clearly visible to everyone in the household that every other component or competing affection is a distant second to God as central. Now, if you have a family unit where God is not the center and something else is centered, then you've got to understand that you are training your child to grow up with their center off base. That's becoming the groove that one day they will fall into. If God is not the center of your home now where they're growing up, he will not be the center of their home when they grow up and establish that later on. Whatever your center is as your family, that is the deepest part of the groove that your kids will one day fall into and find themselves into. Now, we live, unfortunately, in a very unstable and a very transitional world. And what that means is that as time goes by and as life changes... As young kids become older kids, as light financial pressures become greater financial pressures, as these things happen, there is the temptation and the possibility for our center to shift. Meaning that we could be God-centered, but there's competing things. There are, I'll give you eyes, there are immediate needs that are pressing to become the center. Well, we need more money, so we need to make work central. We need something for... There's an immediate something that's saying, you need to deal with this now. And so there's the temptation to move God out of center and to move something else in. Sometimes it's not an immediate thing, but sometimes it's an inviting thing. Sometimes it's just a temptation. Well, if we move God out of center and move something else in, we could move from here to here. Or we could experience 
X, Y, or Z or have something. You know, you, you understand there's sometimes the temptation of something that's saying, hey, just put God on the backside for a little bit, for a purpose, for a reason. You can move him back in later. The wise parent says, no, I'm going to maintain what's immovable. If I make God the center, then I can trust that everything is going to work properly and there will be longevity. And so here's the point, is that if Christ isn't the center of a family unit, then we're training our children to go the wrong way. And if a God center is not guarded and it slips from being the central thing, then it will destabilize the rest of our family systems. It happened to Jacob. You can read the story of Jacob, and what you'll find is that what started as a man who was simply devoted to God, he was a God-centered man, and he began to raise up a God-centered family. But as he began to grow, as money began to increase, as opportunities began to open, things shifted. And by degrees, he came to a place where his daughter was raped, his sons became felons at the worst level, even worse, and and he had to say, hey, we need to move back to center. And so he pulled his family in and said some things need to change, and he did what he needed to do to bring God back into the center. And it's important that we understand that a good family system is a God-centered system. My second point thing I want to share with you tonight is that a good parent, not just God-centered, but a good parent is also a talent scout. We are, as parents, we are talent scouts. Now, we have this natural inclination as human beings to size people up, not, not always in a bad way, but we want to identify and we want to understand who someone is and, and, and what they are. And that's what we do. So we label, we inspect, we look at other people and we see what they're about. We are also naturally inclined to be influencers. That is, we want to influence people in the ways that we ourselves move or, or are affected. So have you ever noticed that when someone really gets into something, they try to get you to get into that something too? You know, someone finds like a fad diet that really they're, they're, they're on and they're looking for some support and so they come to you and they're like, yeah, you should do this. And you're like, what are you trying to say? <laughs> you know, or it could be like someone gets involved in a, in a sporting activity and we always try to proselytize other people to get into the things that we're into. It's just part of human nature. It's what people try to do. Now, here's one of the big mistakes that parents make. And I've made this, you've made it, we've all made this mistake. Is what we try to do is we try to mold our kids into what we think that they should be. But here's the reality. Is that as parents, we are not potters that mold our kids into something, but rather we are scouts that identify what we see in them and we unfold what God has placed in them. And that's an important understanding, big distinction between molding our kids into what we want them to be and unfolding to discover what it is that God has made them to be. Because our kids are not ours. They're God's. We didn't knit them together in the womb. He did. And he created them, and they could be vastly different from the way that we are. And his plans for them may be vastly different from our hopes and expectations of them. And if we try to mold them into something that God hasn't made them, then that's going to frustrate us and them. 
That's not our place. If we want to identify another adult human being, then we look for fruit in their lives. But if you want to discover what it is that God has placed in the heart of your child, you don't look for fruit, you look for seeds. That's what you look for, because seeds grow up to become fruit later on in life. When my eight-year-old now, he was eight months old, I remember it, he was sitting up. He was at that stage where he could smile and he could sit. He could not yet stand and he could not yet talk. Eight months old. And I just loved Riley. He was so good at that age. He was so fun to play with. And I remember we were playing on on the living room floor with one of those kind of puzzle things where you open up the, the octagon thing and all the shapes come out. And then you have to like... Find the hole that fits the shape. And so the star only fits in the star and the square and the square and so on and so forth. And I remember eight months old, Riley looked at this thing and I'm just sitting there watching him. And he looks at this thing and he picks up the plus sign, whatever the X, and he turns the thing and he drops it in. And then he picked up the next one and he turned it and he found it and he dropped it in. And I'm going, this kid can't talk. He, he can't even walk yet. And he's putting shapes identifying and evaluating where they go. He's got this whole thing like figured out. He's eight months old. Listen, that's a seed, okay? There is something there. He, now eight years old, was on a run with my wife. This is just a couple of days ago. They were running outside because they're training for the turkey trot. Anybody else in here run on Thanksgiving Day? Yeah, just us weirdos, right? So, so they're, they're training, him and Georgia, they're running. And Georgia tells me later in the day, she goes, do you know that Riley was like evaluating all the houses? He's going, well, that's a nice house. Look at that one. What eight-year-old is looking at houses and saying like, that one's got this features and that one's good. I wouldn't want, I don't like the color on that. Like what eight-year-olds don't do that? That's a seed. He's got engineer written all over his heart. Okay. Now I'm not an engineer, God knows my wife is not an engineer, okay? If I were to try to say, no, 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 I want a musician, I'm going to frustrate him because he's not a musician. He's got the seeds of engineering in him. And, And what happens as our kids grow up, we start to recognize seeds and the wise parent recognizes the seed and then gives the child what they need in order for those seeds to grow. We feed them with those resources. Our temptation is that we want to strengthen their weaknesses in the things that we see. Wisdom is to strengthen their strengths and let the weaknesses take care of themselves. And so a good parent is a talent scout that recognizes what's going on in them. And then number three, third point, is that a good parent is a great coach. Now these are the verses that you've been waiting for. We've been going through, as we've been going through Proverbs, we have found like a cast of characters, right? Like there was Lady Wisdom, and there was Mr. Foolishness, and there was the seductress woman, and like there's like all these different characters in the book of Proverbs. Well, the cast of characters would not be complete without the rod of correction, okay? Because the rod of correction comes up over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. Let me read you a few verses. Proverbs 29, 17. It says, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yea, he will give delight unto your soul. 
Proverbs 23, verse 13 says this. It says, withhold not correction from the child. Now, this is King James. Don't get mad at the language. We'll get context in a moment. It says, for if you beat him with the rod, it just sounds funny, right? Doesn't it sound like a Lifetime movie? <laughs> you know, like she's going to get beaten with a rod. Watch on Friday at 7 p.m., you know. If you beat him with the rod, he shall not die. You shall beat him with the rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. Now, listen, the context and the language in that day was much different from what it means in our day. This is not advocating child abuse, nor we'll we'll get into it. Proverbs 13, verse 24, it says, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loveth him chastens him betimes, or when it's necessary. There's chastening in this way. And then uh, Proverbs 19, verse 15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth shame. Now, let me give you the context wherein this type of discipline is taught by God and advocated by God. And to do that, I want to turn to a passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 12 so that you understand the heart of God and the heart of a parent in this part of the process of raising up a child. Listen to what God says, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. He says, And you have forgotten... The exhortation which speaks to you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked by him. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son that he receives. If you endure chastening... God deals with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you are without chastisement, correction, reproof, the the rod, so to speak, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and are not sons. So, first of all, what does it mean when it talks about chastisement or when it talks about disciplining you might have in your translation? The literal definition of the word is the full training and preparation of a child. So, really, it takes in the context of a coach. And the outlook and the mindset and the agenda of a coach is to bring the person into the fullness of preparation. Now, the motive and the heart that's behind that preparation is love. Notice what he says. He says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So this is not something that's done out of anger, frustration, or, you know, just plain wit's end activity, but rather it's calculated, it's measured, and it's purposeful for the sake of raising up a child in the right way. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15 says that a child that is left, I gave you the wrong verse, it's not 1915, it's somewhere in 19, that'll make you read the whole chapter. It says that a child left to himself is the shame of his mother. Actually, it's, it is, isn't it 1915? I guess not, Sorry. But, but basically, the, what God is telling us is that when our kids are born in this sinful nature, in this sinful world, there are things that need to be removed, and there are things that need to be installed. And one of the ways that we do that is with the discipline uh, of a parent. Now, um, 
I think in my, my parenting life, in my household, the rod has been one of my best friends. And I, don't, I'm, 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 I mean, and I understand, and it gets awkward because some people have been abused, some people have been wounded, you know, and sometimes it's misused, you know. But, but from the earliest of ages, we saw in the scriptures, what do we do with our kids? Like, how do we raise them up? How do we teach them what's right and what's wrong? And what God says over and over again is that the rod of correction, the rod of correction, the rod of correction. And so we began with our youngest in a way that was gentle and yet, she knew that what she was doing was wrong. And as we raised up each of our kids, what we found is that by the time they hit three, four, five years old, it wasn't necessary anymore because they began to learn the culture of what's right and wrong. And what's right and wrong became instinctual in them to the point where now a look, a word, a a gentle reproof is enough to make the adjustment. And and some have been harder than others. Some have taken more persistence than others. And we've had some sticky times along the way. And I'm sure that we will have more. But for us, it's been our best friend to be able to, at the right time, apply the board of education to the seat of understanding (laughs) for the sake of their good. And it has worked out for their good. Now, what are the guidelines quickly? What are the guidelines if you're going to chasten or give your child that kind of <laughs> training, five things very quickly, if you, if you don't hang on, you're going to miss it, is that first of all, the word of God must be our guide. If we're going to correct our kids, the word of God must be our guide, not our opinions, not our desires, not our mood. But the standard must be clear that this is right and this is wrong based upon what God says. We appeal to him, not to ourselves, and our, our kids must know that and understand it. Number two is that their well-being must be our goal. Their well-being must be our goal. Meaning that we're not doing it because we're annoyed with them or we're frustrated or we're tired or we're angry or because it's convenient in some way. We're doing it for their well-being. There have been times that when we've needed to correct one of our kids for some reason that I have had to say to my wife, You need to do this because if I do it, I'm not going to do it with the right heart or the right attitude. So would you please and vice versa, you know, where they've gotten on her nerves and she's going to say, could you? And I'm not upset about it. What they didn't really bother me, but it has to be dealt with, you know. And so we can do it in in the right way. Their well-being is our goal. Number three, and this is important, is that our pace with them, the pace, the amount of pressure that we place upon our kids must be governed by the Holy Ghost. All right? And a good coach, which is what parents are, a good coach knows how much pressure to apply and at what pace to move each child so that they're not overwhelmed or frustrated, discouraged, or despondent. And we need the Lord to lead us to to pick our battles. There's times that we have to say, well, let that slide. It's okay. They're kids, you know. And then there's times that the Lord will say, no, no, take care of it. Deal with it. But we must be walking with him. Number four is that we must walk in stride with our girl or with our guy. Meaning that we must be on the same page as our spouse when it comes to the standard set that we're going to raise our kids by. Kids are brilliant at playing one parent against another. 
they are amazing at figuring out who's soft in what areas and knowing who to ask when they want to do something that they know one parent would allow and the other one wouldn't. I don't know if that's true in your house. It's true in my house. When my wife says no, we all go, what? It's like a record scratch. Because she doesn't say no. They're like, Mom, can we? And she's like, yeah, go ahead. You know? And it's great for me. Because, you know, like, Georgia, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. You know? But, but I don't know why I got there. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, we rejoice with those that rejoice, right? No, but they know if they want something that's somewhat questionable, they're going to go ask her. And so we have to be on the same page as parents so that they don't play one against another. When I sense that they're trying to play me against her in some way, like it's an immediate no. Like, no, you are trying to get between me and her, and that's not going to happen because I can make out with her, and she and she is she and it's not going to happen. You know, you need to back down, you know, right now. It's not, you know, we have to walk in stride. And then number five, <laughs> you need humor, right? <laughs> Makes the medicine go down. Number five, love must be our goad. Love must. Now, the goad, of course, is the thing that would prod an animal to move in the direction that you wanted the animal to move. We don't use goads in a literal sense with our kids, but we certainly absolutely do in the sense of our training of them and our disciplining of them. And love must be our goad. And here's why. Because if fear is our goad, we want, we're trying to make them afraid of us, or we're trying to make them respect us, or we're trying to show them who's the alpha in the home. If fear becomes the goad, that always produces rebellion. Secret rebellion maybe, but rebellion nonetheless. But if love is our goad, meaning that they know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we're for them, that we love them, that we're committed to them, that our goal is to raise them up and train them up in the best way, and they know that we love them, even in the things that are unpleasant to them, that is going to motivate change. They respond to love. The bottom line is that we have a limited time to prepare them for game day. Someday, they're going to launch. Our kids are going to go, and so we must coach them. A good parent is a good coach, and it comes in many different forms. My son, uh, Rocky, is 16 years old, and I I love Rocky. He is unbelievable. He never does something, at least at this stage, that makes me, like, frustrated with him he's just such a good kid he's a joy to raise i love him and in no way do i ever want to frustrate him or you know just for the sake of something just to poke him you know whatever but the other night (laughs) haven't you learned that when someone says something and then they use the word but you can just forget about everything they said before the word but what really matters is what they're about to say you know No, the other night, he was exhausted. He went on the youth retreat. He had a great time. He hadn't slept. It was Sunday night. He had been up all day, and he was exhausted. He was very, very tired. And he has a job that he, he, for $5 a week, my neighbor, who lives like, I don't know, a quarter of a mile down the road, it's it's an older single woman, and she pays him $5 a week just to take her garbage up, to, to bring, and she has like, she has cats, okay? 
leave it at that. She has cats, which means that the garbage is heavy because there's a lot of cat litter in, in there. And so he's got to carry her garbage can, roll it, it's got wheels, up the hill from, the, from her driveway all the way up to the road. And it's not, it's not easy. And it was wet. It was raining. It was cold. He was exhausted. And he was about to go to bed. And I asked him, I said, hey, did you bring up the garbage? And he went, ugh. You guys know that feeling? Like when you think you're done, and then you find out that you still have something kind of big that you have to do. And my wife, gift of mercy, she said, don't worry, I'll drive you. And I said, standing right there, I said, no, he can do it. And, and she just looked at me and, and you know, and, and he looked at me and, and was like, he can, he can do it. He can, you know. And so he put on his jacket and he walked out the door, you know. And, and I just said, no, no, no. I said, this is a good thing. I said, this is an easy one. I said, as a man, and my job is to bring him from boyhood into manhood, is that he is going to have many, many, many times in his life where he is at the end of himself and he realizes that he's got one more thing that has to be done. That's life. That's reality. It's not unloving. I'm preparing him. This is an easy one. Now, he didn't complain. He didn't cry about it or anything like that. But coaching comes in many forms. And so as parents, we must be wise. Final word I want to give to you on this subject before we move on to something else in our next study. It's not for the parents, but it's for the kids. You might think, well, there's not very many kids in here. We're all kids. But if you're in here or you're a kid or you're listening to this at some point and you're a kid, this one's for you. Here's what I want you to know is that there is no such thing as a perfect parent. There's probably no such thing even as a good parent. It probably doesn't exist in a fallen world. Here's the reality is that we are all kids in dysfunctional homes that are now parents in dysfunctional homes. That's kind of just the nature of things. And so here's my advice to you if you're a child right now and you are being raised by parents. Here's what it is. Take your cues from Jesus because he was once where you are now. He was raised by imperfect parents. And what he did and the way that he got through it and thrived is that he kept his eyes a little bit higher than Mary and Joseph. He was in submission to them, but his eyes were always above. And he realized that who he was ultimately was of God. And his eyes were upon what God had for him, not what his parents were doing to him or not doing to him at that stage. And that was a key to him thriving. Another thing that Jesus did, and this is infinitely harder than that, but he did it. And this is why he grew in wisdom and and stature and favor and with God and with men, is that he listened. Listen, kids. He listened to his parents and to those that were older than he was, even though he was God, even though he knew more than they did, he still listened to them. I want you to look around the room because I'm about to ask you a question by a show of hands. How many in here, by show of hands, I want you to show your hand, don't be shy, would cut off one of your big toes if you could go back and have a 20-minute conversation with yourself when you were 20? Look around. Look around the room. And my hand's up. I would easily, that's an easy, easy one. I'll give you, I might even give you both big toes. If I can have a 20-minute conversation with myself when I was 20 and just say, hey, listen, here's some things that you need to know, 
okay? Don't eat the red one or whatever, you know? <laughs> like, you would, there's some things that you want to say to yourself that you wish you could go back, but you can't. But now listen, kids, this is for the kids. Listen, look at your mom or your dad because they cannot go back and talk to a 20-year-old version of themselves. But you can have a conversation with yourself in 20 years because that's where you're going, whether you like it or not. You may call them nerds now, but you are going to become them. That's the reality. And you have the amazing opportunity to look at your mom or your dad and you say, say to them, say, if you could have a conversation with yourself when you were my age, what would you tell yourself? And can I tell you, that is just as good as if someone could go back and have a conversation with themselves. Listen to what your parents are saying. They know something. They can help you. And here's the reality, is that if you want to do it on your own, which is instinctive, it's inherent, we want to do it by, I want to do it by myself, I want to figure it out. Okay, you have the right, you can do that. But you will go half the distance and it will take twice the time. But if you will listen, ask, receive instruction, you will go twice the distance in half the time. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we have. The, do you know that you can do that? You could be 40 in here right now. And if your parents are still alive, you could do that today. You could call up your mom or your dad and you could say, hey, you know, I was just thinking. What would you tell yourself if you could go back and have a conversation with yourself when you were 40? They probably have something to share with you, something that would probably help you with your next decade or your next 20 years. God has given us people to help us. I want to close this way. Um, about a half a mile from here, between here and where I live, there is a housing development. It's kind of like a middle upper class type of uh, development. I just say that because it's way up above my class. You know, I don't really know what it actually is. But there's like nice homes being built and it's in this, this big, huge hill. And right at the, the peak of this hill, they were very wise when they're building all these houses. They put a model home right on the top. And you can see almost 360 degrees around, just this amazing spot. And they put their model home there where they would have all of people come and, and, and get ideas and stuff. The problem is they built up all the houses all around it. And now the model home kind of was in the wrong spot. And so they needed to move, they needed a model home in the new area where they were developing because now this one didn't work anymore. So you know what they did? They moved it. They, they didn't build another one. They literally picked it up with a crane and drove it to another part of the neighborhood. They set a new foundation and they dropped the existing home on a new foundation in the place where they realized they needed their home to be. And, and I firmly believe that you know, we talk about parenting, we struggle with parenting, it's painful to parent, but as we look at, at the Word of God and, and we think about what it means to have a God-centered home or what it think, we think about the time or the opportunity or the potential that we have as parents, both in a good way and a bad way, I wonder if tonight, I wonder if there might be some of us here that we say, you know what, my house is good, but it's in the wrong place. It, 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 it was good maybe at, at one point and somehow we ended up in a place where now it's off center. It's not where it's supposed to be. Maybe you would say, I need to get my house back. I need to move it. I need to 
realign the foundation walls and put it, not, not start over, but move it back to where it was supposed to be. And if that's you, I just want to pray for you tonight. And I don't know what that looks like in your, in your family context. You know, for some of you, it might just be making Christ first again in your life. Other things have come in and he's no longer first. Maybe for some of you, it's making Jesus the Lord of your life for the very first time. Of just saying, okay, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need you in my life. And what you need to know is that Jesus gave his life so that you could be in relationship with him and that he could lead you and, and, and be the center of your life wherein everything else works. For some of you, it might mean that there's some things that you've allowed into your home that maybe you need to get out of your home. Maybe there's a streaming service or something that is bringing things into your house that are not a good influence and you need to cancel it and say, no, this isn't right. It was a mistake. For some, you may have a child and you need to walk back a privilege maybe that you've given. You know what? We did this in ignorance. We didn't know what it would be, but maybe for you right now, a smartphone is not a good idea. And you walk that backwards, even though it might be painful, it might hurt, but you know it's the right thing to do. And for some of you, you might say, I don't really know what I need to do, but I do know that I need to do something. And so what I ask you is if it's you in any context at all, and you want to be included in this prayer, where you are, maybe you would just stand in your seat. And as I just pray over us that God would give us wisdom as parents, that we'd be good parents, that we'd be God-centered, that we would know how to do what it is that we're doing, that we would have a deep love and appreciation for the souls that God has entrusted into our care, and that ultimately we might see them go further, faster than we did. Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now for us as we stand. And I'm not standing now, Lord, because I'm preaching, but I'm standing because I'm standing. And I pray, Father, in Jesus' name that you would give us your Holy Spirit that you would empower us as moms and as dads, that you would help us, Lord, to put you first, that you would help us to make adjustments where things have gone sideways, that, Jesus, you would be first in all in our lives, and, Lord, that you would help us to love our kids, to know them, that we would enjoy them, and, Lord, that we do it your way. So, Lord, be with my brothers and sisters now. Let your spirit fall upon us. Give us steps that we can take, Lord, that we might finish well. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.